We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. Have you ever watched a TV show? And the show is moving, and it's building, and there's questions. There's some mystery that's still unresolved. And right at the very moment that you think you're finally going to get some answers, you see these three words. To be continued. Is that not the most frustrating thing? Now, in my mind, uh, the first television show that I really started watching and kind of like planning on being home or at least recording on the DVR so that I always got to see it was the television show called Lost. Uh, maybe you've seen it, you're at least familiar with it. But Lost kind of stands out in my mind as a show that was the master of the season finale cliffhanger. At the end of season one, it ends with some of the significant characters looking and peering into this hatch. And that's kind of the way it ends. And they have questions like, what does the hatch mean? You know, who's in the hatch? It ends in other seasons with one of the key characters lying in a coffin. And the question is, is he really dead? There's a bomb that plays a significant part in the show that gets blown up. And what is that going to mean? And they just kind of keep coming. But the biggest shock takes place in season three of Lost. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, this is a spoiler alert. When it's revealed that all of these memories that you think were flashbacks were at sometimes flash forwards. And so it changed kind of the whole time landscape of the television show. And it was a big cliffhanger that was ultimately revealed. Now, the beginning or kind of the daddy of all cliffhangers was on a television show called Dallas. And it was the story of this wealthy Texas family. And one of the key characters, J.R. Ewing, was gunned down by this unknown attacker. I mean, how many of you here y'all watch that? Okay, so I remember it, but I don't remember like watching the show. And the question for like, you know, months was who killed J.R.? And, you know, the, the assumption was that he was dead. But you actually kind of find out that he survives the attack, but you don't find out who his attacker is until the fourth episode of the fourth season. And the thing about these cliffhangers is that you have this story, and you're looking for answers, you're wanting resolution, and then something happens that interrupts the story, and you're left kind of holding the back. Well, Revelation 6, we looked at last week, it sort of ends like that, with a to-be-continued. We see this story of the, of the lamb who is opening these seven seals, and he opens the first six seal, and then all of a sudden this question gets asked. In the midst of God's judgment being poured out on the earth, in the midst of things so terrible... That people are willing to ask to be buried alive. It says that they were crying out, to, they'll cry out to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of the Lamb of God. Things are so bad. The question, and the rightful question is, who in the world could possibly stand? And so there's kind of this interruption, this question that gets asked. And now Revelation 7 functions as an interval between the sixth seal and the seventh. Revelation 7 gives us the answer to that question, who can stand? So if you would, let me invite you to stand now as we read God's word. John writes in Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea 
or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 were from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, Revelation 6 ended with the question, who can stand? And now Revelation 7 gives us these two visions of two groups of people. There's a great crowd of people who endure and who survive these terrible times of judgment that are being poured out on the earth. And they survive because of the triumphant power of God's grace. Notice how Revelation 7 begins after this. Now, you would assume that these events of chapter 7 would occur chronologically after chapter 6, but this is not the case. If you look at verse 3 with me, what you'll see is that the instructions are given, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So it's clear that the earth has not been destroyed. And what we saw last week in chapter 6 is that there's this great upheaval and the rocks and the earth have been torn asunder. So these are not events that are happening sequentially. But again, these are parallel accounts of realities that are taking place at the same time. And they're presenting us with truths that chapter 6 just simply does not address. So chapter 7 begins by... John is seeing this vision of four angels who are standing at the four corners of the earth and they're holding back the four winds. God is pouring out judgment on the earth, but before he does that, he shows mercy. And he has these angels restrain the four angels and the four winds so that his people can be sealed. And this seal will serve as a, a sign of peace, as a sign of protection and of promise. Now, what we see is that the images have switched. In chapter 6, the seal is broken, and there's a voice that calls, Come, and four horsemen come forth. 
Now, this imagery is kind of a recasting of the vision that we talked about last week that takes place in Zechariah chapter 6, where these four chariots pulled by horses were sent to judge God's people. And in Zechariah chapter 6, they're, they're said to represent the four winds. Chapter 6, the voice beckons the riders come forth. Chapter 7, we now have a voice which commands these winds, which are the exact same things as the riders to, to wait. That there is something that has to take place. Death and destruction and the evil that we see unleashed in chapter 6 is now being restrained. And what we see is that God is sovereign. So that everything that happens, even evil, even the death and destruction that we saw in chapter 6, is subject to the will of God. But the question still remains, who can stand in the midst of these realities? And so Revelation 7 gives us this wonderful picture. The angel who ascends from the rising of the setting sun, and he has with him the seal of the living God, which we find out later in Revelation is, is the name of Christ, the seal of God. And he calls with his loud voice, he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And in verse 4, John says, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 who were sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And it goes on to list. There's a lot to do in this chapter with seals. The first six chapters of the scroll have been broken and we're awaiting. What will the seventh seal bring? The first six seals unleash chaos, evil, death, destruction, hunger, suffering. But here, the seal that's applied to the foreheads of this 144,000 to the servants of our God, they actually represent something entirely different. It means peace. It means protection. It means the promise of God rests on his covenant people. Now, there's this angel that's given responsibility to identify and to mark or to seal the people of God. It's very similar to a story that takes place in the Old Testament as well. We talked about if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament and the way God was working in redemptive history. In Ezekiel chapter 9, there's a similar kind of story in which God's people are going to be judged for the idolatry and for the rebellious practices but he says that there's still a faithful group, a remnant. And so he sends an angel to identify and to seal these particular people so that the judgment that falls will not affect them. What God is doing with this seal is that as the disasters of his judgment, as the evil and chaos is unleashed, that his people will have the assurance of their eternal security with him because they're members and partakers of the covenant of grace. Think about important documents that get signed. You know, recently, we had to go have some papers that were notarized. And we had to present our ID, and she had to verify that we were who we say we were, and that we were the ones that were supposed to be signing these documents. And at the end of it, you know, it used to be that they had those really cool embossers, and you know, they like press the paper, and, and there'd be the paper would be shaped to, to reflect the notary seal. Now they just kind of stamp it with a crappy ink stamp, and she signs her notary signature on there. But, but it's to, a, to testify that this document has legal and binding authority. It's, it's a testimony that the people who are signing it are the people who we claim to be. Think about it in, 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 in you know, days gone by, how kings would use wax seals to seal up a, a declaration or a letter. And the seal was in essence saying that it's as if I am in your presence speaking these words to you. They carry the same weight and authority. We talk about the sacraments. Sacraments of baptism and of communion, we talk about them serving as signs and that they point to something and as seals. 
that there's some authority. There are things that are communicated in them. But God's seal is more than something that's just embossed on his page. It's the promise. And it's the guarantee of his presence in the midst of his people. The Holy Spirit is the seal that Paul writes. Having believed that we were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit. A guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. The praise of his glory. He's marking his people out. When Hudson went to camp uh, last couple summers, maybe three summers, he's gone to a camp up in the Uintas YMCA camp called Camp Roger. And we took everything that he was taking and we put his name. We got a black Sharpie marker and we wrote Hudson Plemons. Water bottle, Hudson Clemens, you know, every single thing that we could think of. And the reason why, and we weren't the only ones that were doing this, I think most of the parents with their child did the exact same kind of thing, was because of the chaos of summer camp, things get misplaced, water bottles get left. And what we wanted was we wanted those things to be identified by who owned them so that they could then be rightfully returned. That's what God is doing, is that he is marking not just clothes or water bottles, but he's marking his redeemed people with his seal. He's making a claim on his covenant people. And what's interesting is two things happen. God is marking his claim on us, but his seal also gives us the right to make a claim upon him. The covenant that he commits himself to guarantees us certain promises and reality. It gives God's covenant people a claim on his power, on his presence, on his favor in our life. Paul, again, in writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, has this similar kind of idea. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and he set his seal of ownership on us when he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing us what is to come. What Paul is saying here is exactly what John is saying, is that there's this mark, there's this guarantee that there are going to be times, there are going to be days in which you're going to feel like the promises, the presence of God is not there. And that seal is a reminder that God is faithful and that God is true and that he keeps his promises. So who are the people who receive the seal? Well, there are two visions in chapter 7. And you have to understand both of those in order to answer this question. One, the first vision presents us with a crowd of 144,000 people. How many of you have ever been in a large crowd? Largest crowd I've ever been in was, surprise, surprise, at a college football game. You know? And it wasn't quite 144,000, but it was about 105,000. It was Alabama and University of Oklahoma football game. 105,000, that's a lot of people. But John sees this vision, and it's numbered at 144,000. And one way to interpret this is that it's literally 144,000 people. Not 139,999 and not 144,001, but it's exactly 144,000. The Jehovah's Witness kind of interpreted this in the beginning that particular way. And they believe when their numbers grew to 144,000, kind of like the rapture was going to take place. That's one of the ways to interpret this. That these are a, a group of, of Jewish converts prior to the tribulation which emerged just before the second coming of Christ. And if the way that 12 tribes are listed, it might seem to confirm this idea so that you would then take 144,000 as a literal numbering of this crowd. But I don't think that's the right interpretation. The problem with that is that this 144,000 is almost parallel with the vision that follows of a great multitude that no one can count. 
he sees a great crowd that no one could number. And it's connected, we know, by verse 9, in which we read, after these things. It's very similar to the phrase that occurs in verse 1. Now, it doesn't mean that after these things means this is the next vision that's going to happen, but this is just the next vision that was given to him. So again, they're running concurrently. Now, the number 144,000, I believe, is a figurative way of expressing a very large but a certain and fixed number. We don't know what the number is. It's not 144,000, but it's a large number that shows God's generosity, but it's a very specific, certain, and fixed number. If you remember... Several weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 5. We said that it was the central chapter to the story of Revelation. And it makes this brilliant rhetorical move. We read of this great cosmic crisis. If you remember, the scroll is presented. But the question is, who is worthy to, to take the scroll and to break the seals and open it? And the idea is that only the one who is worthy to execute God's will for the redemptive history of human beings is worthy to do this. The one on the throne has the scroll, but no one is found worthy to open it. And so John, he weeps bitterly. Remember, he's crying because he realizes that if no one opens the scroll, then God's plan to redeem and to rescue fallen humanity will go unfulfilled. But then he's encouraged. Oh, don't cry. Take heart. Why? Because one has been found who is worthy. But it's interesting. Remember what John hears and what John sees. John hears a lion like the tribe of Judah, but when he turns and he looks, he sees a lamb who appears to have been slain. The meaning is found when we take both pictures, pictures that seem to be contradictory, pictures that seem to be at the opposite end of the spectrum, the lion conquering king that looks like the lamb who was slain. When we take those two pictures and we bring them together, we get the full picture or as close as we can get, the best that John can communicate to us, that Jesus is the conquering king who defeats the power of sin and hell and death by dying himself as a sacrifice for sin. That's what the picture of Revelation chapter 5 is. He sees the identity of this Jewish Messiah, and he sees the means by which God's purposes will be accomplished. Jesus will die as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Now, what John sees here in chapter 7 is another amazing vision. What he hears, notice he says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tongue, and tr- I mean, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's what he hears, and then what he sees. This is a great multitude that no one can count from all tribes and people's languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white. And what this is, is this is a picture of the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel as the kingdom of God, exactly the way it had been promised to Abraham and Sarah. You remember, if you go back, there was a promise made to them, a covenant that God commits himself to. And they were barren parents. And he says, if you trust me, if you have faith, if you follow me, then your descendants will bless all the families of the earth in Genesis chapter 12. And this 144,000 and the great multitude, they're exactly the same thing. Just in the same way that the lion from the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain are exactly the same thing. The multitude is the restored, redeemed, covenant people of God from the Old Testament and the New. They're not a limited group specifically from the physical descendants of Abraham, but rather there's this restored kingdom of everyone upon whom God has set 
his mark or his seal. Now, the vision of the Lamb of the Slain leads to extraordinary worship in heaven. This vision of the countless multitude leads to the exact same thing. Notice what this said. Blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So this symbol of 144,000 is not a, a number of, of scarcity. It's not a number of something that we should be looked at and be like, oh, you know, God's stingy. He's only going to save 144,000. But it's really a number that shows the generosity of God's grace being poured out. If we understand it in terms of this countless multitude. So I'll try to help unpack this. The number 144,000 breaks down into a number of abundance when you understand it like this. You begin with 12. And we said the number 12 is significant because it represents what? Does anybody remember? This is where I ask a question. Okay, so the 12 apostles... 12 tribes of Israel, okay? So we have the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. You multiply those, or you square the number 12, you get 144. The number 1,000 is a number that just represents, like, a lot, you know, just a lot. It's not trying to give you a literal number of 1,000, but when you hear the number 1,000, it means this is a bunch. So you take 12 times 12, multiply it by 1,000, and you get 144,000. And it's the celebration here and the salvation of the story of Israel. God has called this particular people to know him, to participate in the story of redemption, to experience his grace, and then to serve as a testimony to the nations or to the Gentiles. They are going to be a light that shines to the rest of the world. And the mission that God began way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the promise of the Messiah was given to Adam and Eve is being fulfilled and celebrated right here. What's interesting, though, is if you look at this listing of the 12 tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Dan are missing. Levi and Joseph are never listed in the other listings of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason I think this is, is that because this list has nothing to do with the physical descendants or the children of Abraham. But this arrangement of the 12 tribes is found and to show us that the redeemed people of God are led by Jesus, who comes from the line of the tribe of Judah. Judah was not the firstborn, so you wouldn't expect his name to appear here at the top. But yet, John, in a stylized way, is writing and he's communicating certain things that Revelation 7 symbolizes, represents, pictures in a manifest way, the reign of Jesus over his people. What we see is that the line of the tribe of Judah is listed at the top. We see the incorporation of outcasts. We see that God is excluding Dan, who was recognized as kind of being the leader of idolatry amongst the covenant people of God. What we see is this gathered, sealed, protected covenant community, which God will shield from his wrath. So this 144,000 are symbolic of the church of Jesus, the people who have been purchased by the blood of Christ who have now been clothed in white, clothed in his righteousness, and have been sealed with God's name so that they would be protected from his wrath, which is coming upon the earth. That great covenant promise which God made to Abraham, through you, all peoples of the earth will be blessed, is now gloriously fulfilled. And we see that in the second vision in which John sees this great multitude in verse 9 that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages who were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, they said, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God. This promise that God made to Abraham is being fulfilled here in John's vision. It's interesting, there's this kind of uh, uh, question that gets offered as this, this kind of break in the action starts to conclude, in which the question is put to John by one of the elders. You know, these in the white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? It's interesting because John's answer is, well, you know where they come from. You know, so it's, it's, it's kind of this weird uh, interplay in which John's asked this question almost so that the, the elder could then provide this particular response. Where do they come from? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's this great picture that's culminating at the end of redemptive history in which this great multitude is represented by diversity. It's not just the covenant people of the nation of Israel, but now the gospel has gone forth and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are gathered around the throne to worship the Lamb of God. It's interesting. He tells who they are and where they come from. They're sinners. We've talked about this before. There's really only one classification of human beings. Sinners. Every single person that's in this room, every single person that you will come in contact with today, they fit into one category, sinner. Now, you take that category and there are two subcategories. There are repentant sinners. The Holy Spirit has come and has convicted of sin and of the righteousness of Christ, has quickened dead hearts and made them alive so they come to believe the promises of the gospel. They're trusting and resting in God's grace and mercy through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And then they're unrepentant sinners. Two subcategories. But every single one of us is a sinner. So you and I have no right to look down upon anybody. You and I have no right to self-righteously condemn another person. Yes, there are times in which we are called to judge and to confront and to rebuke. Why? Because we recognize that the same powers that are at work in them, the same influences are at work in us. And But it were not for the grace of God, we might be in the exact same situation they are. The grace of God does not create a self-righteous people who are excited that there are sinners who are being excluded, but it should break our hearts. Now, God will be glorified in His judgment. God will be glorified in His judgment that He executes. But it should break our heart that there are people, right now, people we love and care for, who have not embraced the gospel as the only hope for the salvation of their souls. We should be agonizing as a church, as individuals and as families, in prayer for these individuals. We should be celebrating the grace of God that we've received and we've been praying for others to experience that same grace in their lives. He says, who are these? He says, you know who they are. 
They have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who can stand? In the great day of tribulation, who can stand? Sinners who have gone to Jesus and have been cleansed by the blood. Those are the ones who stand. In Isaiah, there's passages in which it talks about, though your sin be like scarlet, I'll make it white as snow. The promise of the gospel is that who we were is not who we are. And who we are in this moment is not who we are ultimately going to be. That God has redeemed us. He has saved us from the power of sin. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. He has saved us from its presence in our life. We don't see that always. Because we're in this weird period of redemptive history in which the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus through his teaching, his life, his death, and his resurrection. But we are still waiting the fullness of that kingdom to come. And when that kingdom comes in all of its fullness, these promises that you read right here in verses 15 on, where we will be before the throne of God, we will live in the presence of God. We will see him face to face, no longer through a darkened mirror. We will serve him day and night as temple. He will shelter us with his presence. There will be no more hunger, no more thirst. The sun shall not strike him. Oh my goodness, was it hot this past week? We played golf on Friday? Man, think about that. Think about when the sun will no longer be something that you have to be afraid of because you're going to get sunburned or you're going to simply, you know, possibly you know, develop skin cancer. The sun will no longer scorch the people nor the earth. The lamb will be in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about the world that we know. And most of us, to be honest, we kind of talk about this at Saturday morning uh, Bible study for, for the guys. That because of where we live and the particular point in history, we're experiencing affluence. We're experiencing comfort and convenience that no other people group probably in the history of the earth have ever experienced. And so suffering is, is really for us an interruption. Suffering for us is something to be avoided, but for the vast majority of people who are on the earth now and who have preceded us in years before, suffering was just part and parcel with the human condition. But there's coming a day when it says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of us this past year have lost loved ones. Some of us in this room have loved ones who are experiencing all kinds of physical ailments, disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, number of different things, and it breaks our heart. And we get angry, and we're frustrated, and those are appropriate responses. Those are, the w- those are the ways that the people of God should respond to sin and its influence in this world. We should be angry at what sin does to the people that we love, what it's going to do to us at some point in the future. There's coming a day where that will no longer be a reality. And all the death, the sickness, and destruction will be gone. And so there will be no more need for tears until God wipes them away from the eyes of his people. Right now, we're in the here. And the only ones who can stand are those who have gone to Jesus. Sinners who have presented themselves to the Lamb so that he might cleanse them with his blood. Let's pray.